This episode, I sit down with Dr. Stephanie McCullough and we talk about microfluidics. Before having to do this interview, I knew nothing about microfluidics. I didn't know what it was, why we use it, how it came about, and essentially it's a very interesting field that uses the different dynamics and properties of fluids at smaller volumes to help build assays for high sensitivity. Dr. McCullough is developing point-of-care techniques and does a great job explaining what microfluidics is and the importance of it. Hope you guys enjoy. Kind of the first question I had was, how did you get involved with bioengineering? What attracted you to that? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I started out actually as a biochemistry major. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was thinking about med school. Um, and when I got to campus, I, um, I was at UC San Diego. They have a huge bioengineering program, and I loved math, and I really loved biology, and I really wanted to combine them, and mm-hmm. so it was really attractive to me. That's, cool. So I, I immediately switched my major first semester on campus. Really? Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And from there, it's always been, like, complete interest in the subject? and Yeah, yeah. I, I've um, been lucky enough to see... Um, a lot of it's just such a broad field so I've seen a lot of different sides of it Um, and it's all really fun and interesting I just sort of fell into this pocket of microfluidics and um, a lot of RNA detection I really enjoy it so okay so yeah what is microfluidics do you mind explaining that (laughs) so microfluidics is um, the I guess the creation of these these devices that have uh, features around 10 to hundreds of microns. Some people would even say up to like a millimeter size. So 100 microns is about the the width of a human hair. Um, So things like channels and wells and and even valves and things like that can be put on these uh, little microfluidic devices, like they call microfluidic Mm. chips. Um, So you can do precise control of things like flow and mixing and things like that. So you're using like super small levels or volumes of fluid. Yes. Right? Yeah. What, I was doing a little bit of research and apparently the physical properties of water or fluids change when they're at that smaller, such a small level. Yeah. Um, I think the bigger thing is you're you're dealing with what we would call sort of laminar flows. So very, very orderly, sort of non-chaotic. Yeah. flows um, that are very easy to control. Okay. Um, and there's also big differences. There's a big surface area to volume ratio. So if you think about it, you have these tiny, tiny little volumes. So there's a lot of surface area per volume. Okay. So that can be both a, a big help or it can also hurt your assay right. depending on what you want to do. Okay, cool. And yeah. so what are you using these micro droplets or micro fluids for? Uh, so I guess... And we've done quite a few different things with them. Um, one example that I like to bring up is something called digital microfluidics. Okay. Um, so that is when you make thousands of very, very tiny wells. And these wells are, I mean, they can be tens of picoliters. Um, and if you have a dilute sample... Um, those wells may or may not have a single molecule of the target you're looking at. Okay. So if you can take that target and produce a lot of signal from that one molecule, you can actually count single molecules. So Whoa. it's a really good way to quantify, to, to figure out how much of a very specific target molecule is in your system, like RNA. Okay, cool. And so why, what is so tricky about RNA that 
you would have to use microfluidics. Uh, <laughs> so RNA is, yeah, it's a bit of a beast. Um, it tends to be um, a little less stable, um, okay. I think is the, the biggest thing. Um, you also will often want to measure it fairly precisely depending on your application. And so that's when something like digital microfluidics is helpful because you actually get really precise quantifications. So you can um, count these molecules with a great deal of accuracy. The microRNA that we work with is um, a little bit difficult in a little bit of a different way because they're so short. Okay. So it's hard to specifically detect a sequence. Okay. Yeah. And then are you focusing on like developing the technology of these digital microfluidics and like the chips, right? Aren't you loading them onto a chip or is that... Yeah, we do a little bit of new sort of chip designs yeah. to help, we call it compartmentalize these okay. single molecules just to make it a little bit easier or something that we could maybe ship out to other labs or that was so easy to use that you wouldn't have to have a lot of microfluidic backgrounds to do, mm -hmm. background to do. And so we do do a bit of that, but a lot of our focus, I would say our main focus is developing the techniques to do the detection. So to take one molecule okay. and to create a ton of signal but only when it's a specific molecule you want. And okay. that's that's where it's really tricky, I think. Okay. So is it like a form of PCR or it's like some form of amplification? Maybe? Yes, yeah. So it's, um, it's like PCR in that it uses enzymes to do the amplification, but it's faster, it doesn't require multiple steps, and it doesn't require thermal cycling, so you don't have to heat it and cool it multiple times, okay. um, which makes it um, faster and less complex. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And... Do you speak at all to like how this scale was developed and why are we using such a small scale and something that something might be more manageable like microliters instead of nanoliters? Right, nano, nano, and pico. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess it it depends on the application, but if your sample is very um, relatively dilute, having these small scales are what you need to compartmentalize a single molecule. If it's too dilute, then you would want larger volumes, okay. larger wells. And you can do that. Um, you can actually make really big wells. Okay. Um, it just takes up a little more space. So it is flexible in okay. that sense. Yeah. Cool. And then what, what are some of the implications that this, this technique might hold? So um, we're really interested in using it for rapid diagnostics. So, um, for example, a lot of the microRNA biomarkers we work with, um, they're harder to use because there isn't a really rapid, cheap detection technology. And right now you would do a PCR, so you would need uh, a lab with a thermocycler. And if you want to do something quantitative, you have to actually have a real-time Thermocycler, so you have to take a picture with every cycle. Okay. Um, this is an endpoint detection technique, so you just take a picture of the device at the end. It also, because you only care if you get a signal or not, if you have some inhibitors, um, something that slows the signal down, it doesn't matter. Um, okay. So you're just looking for on-off. So cool. it's kind of like digital um, electronics, where um, you're just looking at ones and zeros, except now it's is there a molecule, at least one molecule in the well, or is there not? Right, and you're doing that over thousands of wells, essentially. Yeah. Cool. So could you use this for, like, you know, like um, a viral infection confirmation? Or? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, I think pretty much any 
detection um, technique, or I'm sorry, pretty much any any biomarker where you're looking for a specific, a specific molecule or cool. target. Um, so you can do more than just quantify like nucleotides with this. Could you like could you quantify like certain like molecules? Like, a neurotransmitter or a metabolite of something? Yeah, so people use um, digital ELISA, actually. Okay. So that's um, a, a technique to detect proteins. Um, if you have, um, I guess, something called an aptamer, that, that is another way to do it, where you can bind a specific molecule to its specific, it's a, a basically a nucleic acid or a, or peptide or something that can recognize specifically a molecule um, where, yeah, if you have a chemistry that reacts to that binding event um, and you can compartmentalize it, you can use digital detection techniques. And it's also a way to quantify it, like you said earlier, though, right? Yes, definitely. Um, Anything where you can, again, compartmentalize um, into, um, let's say, wells where it's, zero or one, like there might yeah. be a molecule or two there, or there might not, um, you can use the statistics to back calculate how much you That's had so cool. originally. That's so cool. I'm just like thinking <laughs> of all the things you could quantify with yeah. like that precision <laughs> and how useful that might be for, for like, so I work in the ER and so we get a lot of like testing and, right. you know, like there's a high sensitivity troponin test for heart attacks. Mm-hmm. So, and we just switched over to that, and I'm sure that has to deal with microfluidics to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah, I'm not as familiar with the details, but I have heard of of that test. Yeah, Um, or like, you know, like HIV infection or something like that. Yes, um, I've actually seen it specifically used for um, measuring HIV viral load, especially at, you know, really low, um, I guess low concentrations of HIV because your concentration of a single molecule in a well is fixed. Mm -hmm. So it's always going to be at that concentration. And if you have a limit of detection, um, you just have to fix it so that it's going to fit with that one molecule per well. Right. That's super cool. So you could trend, you know, it's almost like early detection for like an HIV infection and you could trend that quantity it. Yeah, yeah, you could um, you could definitely do some pretty tight quantification at really yeah. low limits of detection. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. what you're describing is like an interface between biology and like digital technology, almost. Yeah, yeah, it that's, really is. Yeah. So, like, are there any other similarities between like zero and ones, or like where did we come up with this idea to mimic something? digital into something biological? Yes, that's a great question. Um, uh, I guess there were people working in microfluidics who came up with this idea a while back, and I, I apologize, I don't remember no, off the okay. top of my head who was it, but it's been around for years, um, and I think people just realized that um, this was something that was possible and it's something that really changed. It was a game changer mm-hmm. for electronics yeah. um, and that we could use this for more you know, chemistry, biology. Um, so it definitely does increase robustness of your measurement. Cool. Sure. And then how are you creating these micro drops? Like, how does that technique work? 
Oh, so, I mean, there's there's quite a few ways to do it. Um, so in our lab, we just have wells that we can fill sort of out. We have a channel um, with side wells, and those side wells can be filled. And then the center channel, we fill it with like a mineral oil, so something um, so that um, all of the, the side wells aren't connected to each other because they're something aqueous. So there's no crosstalk. Um, I also have a colleague here, Dr. Connie Chang, who actually makes droplets um, okay. by so similar to how you would make droplets. And I don't know if you're familiar with flow cytometry. Slightly, I think yeah. you talked about it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's yeah definitely not common knowledge. It's essentially having um, uh, two phases. Um, one phase, let's say, in our case, would be an aqueous phase or a water phase in the center. Um, and then an oil phase coming in from the sides. And if you can adjust the relative flow rates, you can actually get sort of um, droplets jetting and breaking off. Sort of if you if you turn your faucet on just a little and you see droplet break up, it's, it's sort of like that, cool. except on a very controlled time scale. So, um, or I guess length scale. Um, but yeah, there's uh, several different ways that you can yeah. do it. That's super cool. That's crazy to think about. <laughs> Um, and then I was reading also something about, so the laminar flow meaning essentially means that those molecules of liquid are staying together, right? And there's not really a, an intermingling of the streams if they were to run parallel to each other. Yeah. Yeah. So if you flow two streams together, um, in most microfluidic devices, um, you'll just see very, very, if let's say they're different colors or there's a way to track them, very slow diffusion between the two streamlines. So people have actually used that for detection where um, they have a tagged molecule and if it binds an antigen, the diffusivity of the tagged molecule slows down, for example. So yeah, there are ways to sort of harness that um, if, if you want to for yeah. these assays. And then how do you make these micro pumps and micro valves? Like how tiny? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, there's a, a couple different ways to do it. I think the one that's, it's um, the easiest to describe and really it's, it's sort of beautiful and simple is um, a quake valve where you have um, multiple layers. You have like a, a layer with a channel in it. And then a really, really thin layer of uh, stretchy membrane. Okay. Um, and then a, a layer with another channel over it. And so the bottom layer you can fill with air and it'll stretch the membrane up and block oh. the channel. So anytime that you put pressure on the bottommost channel, um, it'll push up on that membrane and cool. block the channel above it. Cool. How does how does math play or tie into this whole micro-engineering? Oh, yeah. yeah, it's sort of... It pops up everywhere for me, I mean, I guess in what I do. So, um, for example, if you have um, all these compartments and you count how many compartments are positive, you actually have to use statistics to figure out um, how many molecules you had originally because um, some wells might have one molecule, some have zero, but some might have two or three. They're just going to turn up positive. Okay. Um, so that's going to be statistics. There's um, math involved in calculating fluid flow. So let's say you're culturing cells on a chip and you don't want them to see more than a certain amount of shear stress because okay. it might destroy them. You would need math to calculate that or to calculate flow rates. Um, 
heat transfer, so I do reactions on these chips. And I want to know um, how hot is the center going to get. Um, so you calculate that using um, heat transport. Yeah, and then I, I do quite a bit of chemical reactions too. <laughs> that's really the main focus of my research is these chemical reactions. So that's a lot of reaction kinetics, which is again a fair amount of math. It's ordinary differential equations. So it sort of just pops up. <laughs> So it's like total multidisciplinary. It is. Almost everything involved, it seems like. Yeah. I I mean, it's one of the things I really love about bioengineering is I get to talk to people um, who are biologists, who are mathematicians, um, other types of engineers. And it's so fun to hear um, their knowledge and their take on, on science that's totally different than my background and it makes it so much more fun, at least for me. Um, right. So I've been very grateful to sort of sit at that interface and get to interact with all these really cool people. Yeah. That's super cool. Cool. And then, so you mentioned like cult- cell culturing. Mm-hmm. How does that, are you culturing like a single cell in a drop? Um, you can do that. Yeah. What? So, um, oh. that's what Dr. Connie Chang does. She does a okay. lot of like single cell, um, studies, like single cell, uh, infection events for influenza. Um, but you can also look at networks of cells. So I have another colleague here, Dr. Anya Kunsa, who looks at, um, neurons actually yeah. on microfluidics. So she can look at how these neurons build connections, um, in a really controlled way in these microfluid chips you can sort of guide where their axons should go and um so yeah there's it's it's kind of a a fun field because if you can imagine it in your head and draw it on a computer you can make it in the lab um it's really enabling it's almost analogous to pixels of an image almost right like the more Mm -hmm. pixels the greater quality more control the more information there is yeah yeah yes like a so definitely, you, you do need um, a basically very high DPI dots per square inch printer. You need really good yeah. um, number of pixels in a small space to be able to reproduce it. Right. And so um, down to 10 microns, all you need is a really, really good transparency. Yeah. <laughs> um, a really kind of fancy, expensive. <laughs> right. But it is. It's just a transparency that you shine UV light through. Um, and it... Um, depending on the type of um, material you have, is either going to crosslink something or, um, yeah. Cool. And then, so when you are quantifying back to like RNA and like quantifying RNA, when you are quantifying it, how does it show up as positive or negative? Are you using? Oh, great question. Yeah. Um, you can use colorimetric techniques, so a color okay. change. Um, but more often, people use fluorescence because that's where the technology already is. So okay. let's say you make a ton of DNA product and then you have a, a dye that mm-hmm. intercalates into your DNA product. And when it binds to the DNA, um, it becomes very fluorescent. Okay. So, yeah, that I would say is more common ways um, these fluorescent assays and then are you like hand counting each dot oh no (laughs) like taking a picture with a a microscope and then using a computer to count them yeah i mean we can just uh take a picture with a microscope though there are um sort of big 
sorry. <laughs> there, <laughs> um, the, there've been a lot of technological um, advances in imaging. And so there's um, been quite a few people making, um, I guess, little modules for your cell phone where you can just take what? a picture with your cell phone. And then you don't hand count. You just take image processing software um, and then tell it, you know, I'm looking for something that's about this size and has to be above this fluorescence for a positive, and then it'll just process it for you. So that's sort of the future of what, how people want to use these. Um, on your phone? Yeah, that's how... Uh, there's more phones than there are toilets in the world, right? I mean, oh like, gosh, yeah. everyone ha almost everyone has a cell phone, um, regardless of sort of where you live. And so yeah. people are really leveraging that technology to try to make diagnostics a little bit more available um, and universal crazy so like in theory someone could you mentioned point of care devices someone could have a point of care device in some you know even underdeveloped place without running toilets or running water mm. yeah and have a micro array with microfluidics and mm -hmm. take a test and sure enough with their phone have yeah. a result. upload it to a cloud um yeah. I, I had a colleague in my postdoctoral lab um that worked on a project like that where he would take, um, I mean, the picture he took, I don't believe he had a cell phone module for it, but he would, you know, upload it to a cloud and have software to do the analysis. And then um, the idea is you could send the results directly to the doctor. So this is something a lot of people in the community have been thinking really hard about. And I, I think it's really exciting. I feel like we're on the brink of yeah. really pushing this forward so that it can be accessible, this type of technology yeah. to everyone um, right. not just people with great insurance in a big city next to a centralized hospital right yeah where I'm like even thinking like again back to like my own experience which is super limited but in the ER right. like we're waiting you know there's a rapid strep test or there's rapid things but a lot of the blood tests you know or infectious diseases specifically like Lyme's disease doesn't have a great right. test for it and it's like usually pretty poor as far as you get a lot of false negatives. Oh, and so people I didn't know have that. Lyme symptoms, yeah. And it's like pretty bad where they have Lyme symptoms but they keep getting false negatives because the RNA of the spirochete keeps modulating and changing and mutating. Oh, is that it? Yeah. Oh gosh. And that's terrible because if you have chronic Lyme's it can be devastating. Yeah, because right? it's like demyelinating neurons and stuff. So, you know, it's oh, like God. this terrible <laughs> Infection and like the the way to diagnose it is with sequencing, but that sequencing sucks. So yeah. if you could like have a device like this that would potentially change like diagnosis of Lyme's. Yeah, for a lot of people. Yeah, if you could keep up with the the mutations yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's something to think about. I, <laughs> I actually didn't know that. That's really, really? interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I mean. Yeah, definitely do the due diligence, but yeah. everyone I've known, because like that's the thing about Lyme disease is its symptoms vary so greatly, because it's like, they're like, oh, they have heavy metal poisoning, they have a demyelinating symptom, they just are autoimmune disorders, whatever, right? And it's really hard to pin down because I think they get like significant false negatives on the test. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So who knows? Like maybe yeah. in the next couple years, this <laughs> will be the next thing. <laughs> it's something to look into. Yeah. I'm, my interest is peak. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs>
Oh, one thing I wanted to talk about, and this is a little different, but biphasic DNA amplification. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that... um. That is just one of the technologies that we um, developed here in our in, in my lab. Um, so essentially, um, this is the side that is trying to figure out a better way to give a good on-off signal, and we um, we're trying to make something that is what's called ultra-sensitive, so that it's very very responsive once you hit a certain threshold of um, input molecules, so that we could really easily. Um, count our output or we could make DNA circuits that sort of um, had more of a yes no answer even if it was in a tube like yes you have more than this amount of biomarker or this relative amount of biomarker and that was our original goal um, and then we ended up stumbling across this amplification reaction something that would create a lot of signal in the presence of a target molecule um, that was biphasic and for us, that felt really perfect because we're doing something that is supposed to be yes/no, on/off, and it had sort of a lower level amplification, and then it would jump up into this really, really high level output where we we could see tons and tons of signal. So um, we spent a lot of time, and we're still spending a lot of time characterizing that, trying to figure out okay, what's what's actually going right. on here? Like, so what's the science behind what's going on, yeah. and then how can we use that to create a better assay? And you guys aren't necessarily using, like, thermal regulating for it, though, right? That's what is unique about it, is it's more of this it's, DNA switch, almost? Yeah, or? yeah, and it's isothermal, um, oh. meaning that it all runs at one temperature. Cool. So we don't um, have to have um, expensive equipment to yeah. regulate temperature. Um, uh, you can actually get a... Um, isothermal heat heating with no electricity um so what you have is an exothermic reaction and a phase change material so um for example uh, a wax that melts at 55 degrees celsius and so you'll heat it up and then it's going to while it's melting stay at that temperature okay so yeah you don't even need electricity necessarily to hold at that one temperature which again like open the door to so many other things potentially right yeah yeah definitely i think um it it could be used for areas where you're not necessarily going to feel like well you're not necessarily always going to have access to electricity or yeah yeah Yeah. it's like that do you think and this is just because i was thinking about this do you think that this technology could be used for like improved pregnancy tests almost hmm as far as like finding, I don't know the biology of like the DNA change or RNA changes that occur. Yeah, I know. Right now they're looking for, um, I guess HCG. Yeah. Like, um, so that would be more uh, protein detection. Um, so I don't know if it would be something you could use for improved pregnancy tests but if there and there are times where you're looking for particularly dna or rna um in the blood in that case definitely yeah Yeah. so more diagnostics once you know that you're pregnant yeah Uh, or maybe like you know those those slew of diagnostic tests that some people choose to like go through to see if there is like a mutation or right you know 
trisomy 21 or whatever. Yeah, like yeah, that's yeah, it's more along the lines, I think, of what you could do with this type of assay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think digital assays are most valuable for when you want a quantitative answer. So okay. if you're looking not for yes, no, is this here, but is this here and how much of it is here. Yeah. Um, you could check, like, you could track gene expression of certain things. Right, yeah. Cool. For sure. And it would be different than, like, here's this protein. It would be, like, here's the RNA to this protein. Right, yes. So, like, yeah. showing, like, it's a definite, like, work. That's, like, a step more, like, any any research paper that's looking at modulating protein levels or anything. You know, if you can measure the RNA, that's kind of, like, the gold standard of it, right? I think so, yeah. Though I think... I think both is good because just because yeah. you have the RNA doesn't mean you have the protein. Have the protein. So, but yeah, doing or all like, of them. Yeah. yeah. So you could probably elucidate like certain steps along the way to protein formation. Like, right. do we have the RNA but not the protein? Right. Kind of thing. Yeah. And, and definitely um, we are also thinking about ways to take this technology and use it for protein measurement as well. That's actually one active grant that I have is making um, a little uh, microarray to do detection um, simultaneously with proteins and nucleic acids um, all in one platform using the same chemistry. So um, that's something that we're trying to work towards for sure. Do you want to talk about um, like nucleic acids for a quick moment? Sure. And about like I was reading some of the papers that you had published and it seems that you can detect You've, you've come up with a way to detect very, like, small levels of nucleic acids. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I think I, in the past, gone through a couple um, different efforts on that front. Um, and one thing that I've worked on is, is, is creating new chemistries to do that amplification to make that signal. Um, so that's always been a big focus of mine. But another thing that I've worked on in the past is, and it's something I actually have, some active projects on my lab too is um, the part we sort of haven't touched on. We talk about taking this, the molecules and putting them in wells and detecting them or putting them in a tube and detecting them, but not how do you clean those molecules and separate them, you know, right. and that's a big part of it too. Um, it can be difficult um, depending on your application to use like, let's say, whole blood or, or serum. So there are times when you really do need to um, to isolate the nucleic acids out of a large volume sample and clean them up and remove all the other proteins and potential reaction inhibitors depending on yeah what your downstream application is Um, so that's also something that i'm really i really do care quite a bit about because i feel like it's part of your complete assay if you want to detect nucleic acids yeah um um if someone's interested in this subject mm -hmm. is there like a good website or a good book or something that you can recommend that they look at further? Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's a great question. I um, So I, I guess it depends on um, sort of where you're coming from, which side of it you're coming from. I guess if you're... Um, more coming from the biology side, I think there are a lot of really great review papers out there okay. um, over the years that, that talk a lot about, I mean, 
I, I would hone in on one tiny little part of it, like cell culture. Right. If you're interested in cell culture and megapolitics or, yeah, diagnostics, if you're interested in that. Um, there's actually a really great book um, if you're more interested in the math and the physics behind microfluidics. Um, I think it's by Brian Kirby. Um, he has a whole book on, yeah, I don't remember what it's called. It's the physics, cool. <laughs> microfluidics. Cool. Um, cool. So, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of great resources out there. Um, cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for sitting down and oh, spending yeah. some time and answering questions. Oh, yeah. Really it's my pleasure. It.